Hello. Welcome to the Pearson Presents podcast. This is the first episode of our 2022 series. We'll be discussing the book, The Midlife Cyclist, written by our friend and colleague, Phil Gavell. I will be introducing a panel of four guests, including the author, in front of a live audience. Welcome to Pearson Cycles. I'm not very good at this. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Um, you're in Pearson Cycles. <laughs> this is the uh, this is the company that is the oldest bicycle company in the world. I think I'm the oldest bike shop owner in the world. <laughs> we are William and I. This is William over here are the fifth generation of Pearsons. We've been going since 1860. And we, this one, this is just for the benefit of people who don't really know us. Most people know all the story already. Uh, but for the benefit of those who don't, we have been doing this for a very long time and we are 160 plus years into the, uh, five generations of uh, Pearsons. So we have uh, moved on very, very quickly during the last couple of years because of the massive demand in bikes and together with all the rest of the cycle industry. So we have, uh, we're coming on in leaps and bounds and we are producing a wide range of Pearson bikes, uh, notably in the gravel and in the road and in the urban sector. And uh, we will continue to do so. So, without any further ado, um, we will just crack on and um, introduce our first guest. Our first guest is the co-founder of London's CycleFit, highly respected bike fitting business that also sells bikes. Um, he's also one of the leading lights in the world on the subject of bike fitting. Uh, and one of his greatest achievements is he is embarking on bridging the gap between the professional medical and physical therapies and the developing bike industry. He's a friend, he's a colleague, and he's a mentor, and he is also the author of The Midlife Cyclist. Welcome, Phil Cavell. <laughs> Our next guest is a physiotherapist who specializes in cycling. Uh, she's the founder of her own practice, which is called Bello Physio. Nicola works from time to time at CycleFit with Phil and Jules in a support role for physical therapy and for bike fitting as well, I believe. And I might mention that she's also a head of a cyclist. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Nicola Roberts. Our next guest has been a long-time customer of ours, and in that time, she has become a great friend and cycling partner. She has an unbridled enthusiasm for everything cycling, and it's all the more poignant when you learn that she is also 
a great survivor. She's had breast cancer and a brain tumour and is on a road to recovery from this. She's fought back hard and she uses cycling to, as part of her recovery, both physically and mentally. Uh, she's a founder of a charitable, charitable cycling group called One More City, which raises money for cancer research and medicine development. Christine O'Connell. Our next guest is the co-founder of Action for Happiness, our chosen charity for this evening's event. He is, of course, you can tell by just looking at him, a midlife cyclist himself. <laughs> he actively, actively extols the virtues of cycling as one way, a very good way, of improving mental health. Mark Williamson. I might also introduce the audience. So, everybody here does share a common interest. You are all essentially midlife cyclists. <laughs> um, like me, and I'm sure that you feel this, you intend to ride your bike for the rest of your life. One way or another, until the very end. And like me, I would have thought that you would see very little to stand in your way of that. So welcome to the welcome to you all. Thank you very much for coming. But we do have actually a few stars in the audience, but I think we'll we'll come to those people later. Um, thank you very much. Well, can I just start uh, just by talking about the book? You 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 wrote this book during lockdown while everyone else was either riding exercise bikes or dancing to Joe Wicks in the back garden or decorating their house and you wrote a book. Why, why, did, you, why did you write your book at that time in your life? Uh, is that working? Yeah. yeah. So um, I guess I wrote it, Guy, predominantly because I could, I think, is the answer to that. I felt an obligation to write it. I um, have been lucky enough to work in the cycling sector, which is, a terrific, as you know, a terrific place to work. Very warm, empathic, generous people tend to work in the bike industry. Uh, and then they well, die. Um, <laughs> and so we all tend to get on. We, are, we all are very close friends. And in our part of it, where we're just dealing with bike fitting and the ramifications of bike fitting, I was very privileged to have a very, very close family of people that we work with. So people like Nicola, a physiotherapist, Dr. David Hulse, who's hovering around somewhere. David, can you put your hand up? So David, David Hulse is featured extensively in the book. So David and I have known for many, many years. And then there's people like Alex Figaro, who's an osteopath, and then Dr. Nigel Stevens, coach. These people are around me. And then I also had um, my clients who were trying to achieve extraordinary things. So on the one hand, I had these people who were trying to achieve extraordinary things. On the other hand, these extraordinary people who were helping me help them. And there was a story there. And so I predominantly wrote it because I could. And I started it before lockdown. I started it, in fact, my editor's over there, Matthew. I 
I started it in 2017, I think. So it, it was a slightly long gest longer gestation period than, than I wanted. But I started before lockdown, wrote it probably a third before lockdown, but then lockdown accelerated everything. So was it just because you had the opportunity to actually sit down on your own and not, not work for a bit? You, uh, yeah. Matthew got around my house, actually. Became all the padlocks and all my doors, and so I couldn't get out. So it just had the, I had the opportunity to write it, but it's a short answer to that, really. Thank you. I just um, wanted to just start with uh, when we're talking about the book, one of the very earliest notions that you, you bring up is, the, is the, the point that, as a group of people, and it's not just a group of people, it's a group of scientists, we are the first generation of humans in the history of humanity to exercise past the age of 40. And it's not just that, exercise to a greater extent, to you know, high activity, uh, big stresses on the body. Um, and that, to me, resonates throughout the entire book. So everything that you mention after that, you keep thinking back to the fact that we as humans are pushing a few boundaries. Can you just talk about that? A bit and just explain sort of where that notion came from. Yeah, and it's funny because in all the things I have done in the book, um, that's you're the first person to really bring that up in the way that you have, and I, I absolutely think that is the one of the founding pillars of the book. But this has never been done before. We're all embarking on this huge human experiment in a couple of hundred thousand generations of biped. No one's ever done this before. No one's done it in any num in the numbers that. You know, in the numbers that we are, so it's relevant statistically. It's an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary experiment we're all embarking on. Inadvertently, we didn't know we were, but we are embarking on a huge experiment. No one knows what happens when you take a body my age and try and bring performance out. It's never been done before. And I sort of think that was, to me, that was a founding pillar of the book. That one thing was where I started. This is an experiment, and we're all we have acknowledged that it's an experiment. Um, and it presupposes it's a healthy, good thing to do. And it probably is. I mean, it probably is, but it shouldn't be assumed. And so the book was all about questioning those, going back to first principles. Uh, and you're right, Guy. I, think, I do think in the book I keep bringing it back to that one thing. Um, I think partly just to reset myself, but also the reader. This is an experiment. We don't know. And, and it really does keep resonating all the way through because you do, you do find yourself looking back and thinking, well, you know, obviously there's, you know, we just talk about the heart and you talk about bone structure and everything else. It is all new territory, absolutely new territory. And, it, and, it's, and is it, how vastly different is it from, say, our previous generation or 10 previous generations before us? How, what, what are we doing that's a little bit, that's, that's that different? And how, how were they different is probably my question. Well, you, mean, you, you might come from the, because you, you're the fifth generation of, Bike races in your family, so you you're probably not the you're probably not representative. Your dad probably rode bikes until yeah. he was yeah. So you're not representative. But think about my own father, who was a really really good gymnast and a, a high diver, competitive high diver, but stopped sports at 21 when he got married and had kids. Done, you know. And then that was it really. And that's a familiar tale, you know. That our parents probably stopped any kind of structured serious exercise when they were 20s, 30s. So, and that's one, that's what, one or two generations ago. So something happened between them and us, and we're not prepared to lie down. We're, we're keeping going, and we're we keep resetting our goals. So in that sense, and you know, we are, 
No, we are crash test dummies. No question. <laughs> was, that, was, was that the question? Yeah, well, that's, that's good enough. That's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the question. I, I, I would like to just talk, talk a little bit, but if we could go back maybe so 40 generations or 50 generations or you know, 300, 500 years, we are a very different animal now. So we are a, an animal that can survive longer. Why, why, why was it that... Um, no, that's not one of my questions, actually. I think I'd just like to really point out that, in, you know, that in hundreds of thousands of years ago, at the age of 35, you'd be dead. You'd be, or even, not even that. By the time you brought up your children so that they were big enough and, and clever enough to be able to fend for themselves and have children for themselves, you were, out, you were out of the equation. You were gone. You were just, there was no need for you. You were expired. And then there was another shift later on where suddenly you could make it to the age that you become a grandparent. And then once, and then you can look after the children of your children while they were an adult, and living, whatever they want to do. And then it's only in the last sort of 50, 60 years that we've got to the point where we can live to 85 or 90 or 100. So we are, uh, just wanted to point out that we are this, this sort of ambassador, this, uh, this uh, pioneer, or what do you call it, crash test dummy. Mark, can I just ask you, uh, from the aspects of mental health, is it, are we, are we crash test dummies in this sort of later age uh, as well in terms of keeping our mental health alive and well? Are we, are we sort of, are you, are you in the mental health business, are you, are you, are you also learning as you go along? Um, yeah, well thank you. Um, it's a really good question. I, I would say that a really interesting thing has happened about mental health generally in the last sort of five years in particular, with just a much greater awareness and willingness to talk about something that's really always been at the heart of the human condition. We've always struggled with anxieties, with mental challenges. We haven't really been very good at talking about it, particularly men haven't been very good at talking about it. So that's been a really positive shift. A lot more public figures. Uh, actually, of all the terrible things that have happened in COVID, one of the really interesting things is we've talked about how we're feeling a lot more in a really helpful way. Um, I really love this book, and I really love the fact that Pearson are putting on things to talk about mental health as well as physical health, because I would say that typically we've thought about cycling's benefits through the lens of physical health, and actually what you do really well in this book is remind us that it's about our overall well-being. I, if it's okay, I've got a, a, a quote that jumped out at me from the book. Could I just read it? Because I think it really captures something really amazing. It's uncontentious that cycling for an hour or so per day with varying intensity is one of the most life-affirming, life-extending things you can possibly do. It's a stronger drug than any pharmaceutical company ever invented for making us happier, healthier, less stressed, and clearer thinking. How much training structure, diagnostics, and data do you need to enhance your performance at this level? Well, I would suggest whatever makes you happy and helps you enjoy your cycling more. Well, for me, that's the kind of ethos of this book, which is about kind of enjoying it. And actually, what a lovely way of doing it. While you're talking, would you like to just explain a little bit about what you do um, in terms yeah. of what Action for Happiness is and, and what it does? So we are a small UK charity at one level, but we also have a massive global community of nearly 300,000 members and supporters of people who are trying to take positive action to promote mental well-being. Um, there were great charities out there dealing with the really extreme end of the spectrum, people who are dealing with you know, severe clinical anxiety and depression. Our aim is more about getting the general public to talk and think about how we're feeling, the importance of our mental health, and how it links to day-to-day -day activities, our relationships, our physical activity, our fitness, our 
resilience and so on. So we have a range of programs in communities and schools that do that. And uh, we have something called the 10 Keys to Happier Living. And um, I spoke once at an event here before, and it, it really struck me. Oh, you very kindly brought them. Thank you. That's an amazing service. I recommend this Gold. shop. What's interesting when you look at these things that all come from the research about the things that tend to be really good for our overall well-being, cycling's really good for loads of them, and Phil brings it out in the book, and in fact, I'm sure other panellists will give great practical examples, but there's some obvious ones like physical health, and trying out in terms of learning new things, direction, having goals um, that we work towards, resilience, like bouncing back, you know, keeping going and so on, but there's some more subtle ones like self-acceptance, like every cyclist has that feeling of like, oh my goodness, I may think I'm good, but I'm... I'm, I can never be as good as that other person who's just dropped me. Um, a, a sense of giving and relationships. Like I, I think some of the most profound conversations I've had with, particularly with male friends I wouldn't otherwise talk about, things like their wife's cancer diagnosis, have happened while riding a bike together, a sense of connection, a sense of camaraderie, friendship, kindness. I love what you said about this industry being generally a really warm place. Um, so I think, actually, when you look at the things, I mean, these are available online, I don't want to bore you with it all now, but... Generally, almost everything that matters for our mental health, cycling touches on in some way. So I think it's great that you're helping remind us of that. So actionforhappiness.org um, is where you'll find this whole framework, lots of online courses, programmes and other information. But thank you for that. It's an excellent framework. I, just, just, I was going to talk about it later, but I can bring it to the front um, the, uh, it's, It spells out, what's it spelling out? Sorry. A great dream is the great acronym. Dreams, the yeah. ten things, yeah. We might, we might come back to that. Um, Phil, can I just... Um, well, can I just ask a related question to Phil, which is, what do you think... Do you, have you sensed more awareness of the whole well-being, including mental health benefits of cycling as part of the work you've done for the book, as well as just the sort of physical benefits? As, as a result of the book, what you mean? Well, just as part of your journey, because you obviously know a lot about this. Yeah. I, yes, it is the answer. Um, the, I mean, there's a chapter in the book, chapter eight, which is the last chapter I wrote called The Mindful Cyclist. And that came out of a, a series of interviews and conversations I had with one of the cardiologists, Dr. Gemma Perry Williams. But the conversations we were having were kind of, they, they deviated out of, of cardiology and more into what, what I was interested in, which is why, why, why are we having these problems that we are having, not everybody. And she said, well, look, I, I can't give you an answer, but let's, you know, let's hypothecate why men, particularly middle-aged men, might be having these issues. And it was all about how we process information, how we process life, how we process our relationships, how we don't sort of talk about these things, and we tend to sort stress and, you know, and, and how those stresses can, be, can become, you know, layers of inflammation that we just add to. And so that, in that sense, I, she was kind of, she was triggering thoughts I was already having, but giving them a bit, a bit more of a formal structure. And I, you know, I, I, I give a lot of credit for that chapter because she really led it in the conversations we, that we were having at that time. Um, and it was amazing for, for Cardiology to speak as, as she did, really. Uh, so, Phil, are you just saying that you... Because that chapter was the last chapter, I think, wasn't it? It's the last chapter in the book, and it's the last chapter I wrote, and, as Matthew would testify. And had, had you not had those conversations... Where's that chapter? <laughs> <laughs> would you have not put it in at all? Is it something you weren't even going to put in had you not had that conversation? Probably in a more anecdotal way, like Mark was saying, just what, what cycling has meant to me in you know, tough times in my life, and how I've kind of, you know, and you'll know this guy, everybody in the world, it's like, you know, the, the bike is a reset moment, it's a reset tool, it's like everything else can be going to shit, but 
you know, at least you can get on the bike and you can just, there's something about cycling that, it might be the mechanical action, it might be the fact that you're out in the lanes, and the, but it's just something about, re, it just resets, doesn't it? You, you can go out in a bad mood, but you don't come back in one, or rarely, do you know what I mean? And that's why I like the fact you call it the mindful cyclist, by the way, because for me, I've, I, I, one of the things that helped me when I had a really bad stress-related back pain problem was learning mindfulness, the kind of meditative practice. But actually, I've discovered that cycling is basically meditation on two wheels. And, and actually, that's why it clears our minds, is that we connect with nature, check in with what's going on, clear, you know, get out of our heads. It's really, really good. Yeah, but there's also, there's also an, there's a point at which, in, I think cycling is unbelievably good for depression and anxiety, all those things I really genuinely do for 99% of people, 99% of the time. But there is a, a moment there where the action of cycling and exercise is too repetitive for people who are, so you know, it's, it's good for most people most of the time who've got, you know, who's trying to deal with stress. And, uh, but there's a moment where cycling is actually just too mechanical and too repetitive. And I remember that moment myself where I was having some problems, stress problems, anxiety problems, depression problems. And the action of cycling was just too much. And it was devastating. Absolutely devastating. The one place I had, the one thing that I had, which is, I mean, I could always go to the bike and get that reset moment. And actually, I couldn't anymore. It was just it was something about it was too mechanical. Luckily, that moment didn't last very long, Mark. And I moved on and could get back to it being like church, which is, you know, which is a place that it's always been. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Um, can I just um, can I just ask, Bill? Um, who is the midlife scientist? I mean, where, where, is, where is this this thing called the midlife scientist? I, mean, I, 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 I believe we all are. Um, where, where does that midlife scientist come from? Are they are they always being scientists? Are they people who have just cycled from the day they were born and they were they just keep going and they're just going through a, a journey, or are they coming from different sort of places? Yeah, they they yes, they. That's a good point. So some of them are like you and I, just who just. You know, we, we frequently refer to back in the day because we you know we were there, and you know you and I would rock up and be in a break together. And every bloody road race I was ever in, you'd be in that break, and, <laughs> which is great because I knew that you and I would work harder than everybody else in the break, <laughs> as we always did. So there was us, you know, who just been done it, done it for too long, and that's why we look like we look. Um, and, but then there's also people who are coming from other sports. They're coming from squash and rugby and rowing and cricket. All the sports are, are difficult to play when you get to the So this has become, we've become this kind of great big pool, harvesting pool of people that come from other sports who don't want to stop. And they find a great home in cycling. And that's been the biggest part, pleasure of my professional life, is welcoming those people to cycling. Amazing. And that's part of the reason I think I wrote the book. It's like, oh my God, it's like, these people are rocking up with all these dreams. And guess what? They're achieving them. It's amazing. You know, and, that, and I think so we've been lucky enough. We've kept the people we've had. And we just welcome so many other people from different sports, uh, you know. And that's the, and I think that's part of you know the reason you and I are standing in this wonderful shop in in in, in you know Sheen uh, is because you know it's it's because of that, isn't it? You know, absolutely. Yeah, I think. yeah, it is. And then and then that's so. There's, there's essentially there's two camps there. So there's people who've always been bike yeah. riders. There are people who are coming into bike riding because they can't run anymore. They can't play ball sports or whatever. All those sort of other reasons. Or just don't like the sport that they were doing, and and on the whole, with those with that sort of group of people, I I do generally think that most people who come into the sport cycling regret not going into it earlier. Absolutely, you, you sort of discover the oh, it's really good cycling. Could be professional. And then there are. <laughs> <laughs>
And then there are other people who come in from absolute scratch, having been, uh, I don't know how you put it, but very sort of neutral in terms of their exercise in their past, you know, most of their life, and then suddenly they can only pick cycling because that's the only sort of supported exercise that's you know, safe and, and you can do it, apart from swimming and rowing. They want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, so, so can I just... Christine, can I just ask you a question? Um, how you, you sort of came into cycling uh, when in your thirties, I think it was. So what 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 got you actually into cycling in the first place? Yeah, I guess it was just a, a friends uh, started doing laps in Richmond Park. And I thought, why not? I'll start doing that. Um, and then somehow I got signed up to cycle around Cambodia on a bike, which was a nightmare <laughs> because I had no fitness to do that. Um, and then I think. Must have been a week before I was meant to go. I found um, I had cancer, um, so that you know put an end to that. There was nowhere I was going to go cycling. I was going to use my chemotherapy instead, and um, clearly it was devastated on many levels. And um, this friend said, "Well, okay, here's your challenge. You know, you have to get through treatment, and then I've booked us to ride from London to Paris. You know, in a year's time, and you better be there, and you better be fit." Actually, I came and saw you guys. You helped me out. Way, but it must have been 2013. Long time ago, and so I'm doing this. And you know, I think I was put on a hybrid bike with flat pedals, and I started there, um, and just haven't stopped ever ever since. Mm -hmm. And it's been a just you know, it's a huge part of how I feel with my cancer, how I follow the treatment, and you know, mental health, all of that. It's been extraordinary. And so, when you um, just go over it again, the the you had cancer in uh, breast cancer, I believe, mm -hmm. in. 2012, and then you then discovered that absolutely out of the blue that you had a brain tumor in 2016. Yes, yeah, 2018. 2018. So, so what happened was I so I had treatment, I had chemotherapy, radiotherapy, surgery. <coughs> I got to about five years, which is normally you think you get to five years, you're okay. Um, I've been absolutely fine. I was actually cycling into London, and um, I apparently had a seizure. So I remember going through Mayfair and I woke up on Oxford Street in an ambulance mm -hmm. with my bike. Miraculously, like someone had rest in my bike. So I went to A&E and they told me you've got a brain tumor. And I was like, oh my god. And so it actually was the breast cancer that had spread to my brain um, and down to my bones as well. So I now have secondary breast cancer. Um, I, you know, I had brain surgery. I had um, something called cyberknife radiotherapy. So, you know, effectively, I have no active disease now. It's definitely still there. It never goes away. Secondary cancer. So, I would be on treatment the rest of my life. I take a, a pill every day. I'm scanned and monitored to the nth degree you know, every every three months. Um, but you know, I I can still ride my bike, and I've actually never been fitter in my life, frankly, than I am now. Um, and you know, we have a competition to email. I, I, you know, the, the, the science is not there around the benefits of exercise for cancer. But I mean, I really believe that I'm still here thanks to the, the exercise and, and the cycling. Um, and I, you know, I think the, the research is starting to come on about is it um, really around is it about the kind of chronic inflammation, or is it about is it about that the, somehow the exercise stimulating your immune system, there's something going on that we can't prove um, that I think is usually beneficial. You're an incredibly strong person, Christine. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So Phil, can I just uh, go back to the book? Um, 
on the front cover, it says train hard, ride fast, stay healthy. But actually, on the back cover, it's got the, the tagline that you really wanted on the book, which is, grow old, get past, don't die. <laughs> Can you just tell me why that isn't on the front cover of the book? Matthew? Oh. <laughs> My sales team isn't right. Oh. <laughs> but we do it some stage We did, Matthew, though, yeah. But Matthew and I were lobbying for it on the front cover right there, but we didn't get it. So it, it made the back cover. Well, it's courageous for, for Bloomsbury to put that on the back cover at all. It's quite great, actually, quite courageous, isn't it, Matthew? Yeah, we didn't break it. So yeah, always be brave. I mean, it's quite, it's quite, uh, quite harsh sort of uh, tagline, isn't it? Don't die. Is it? Yeah. Well, it's 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 uh, <laughs> straight to the point. I mean, it's actually straight to the point. Um, the the book itself, it, it says on the front a roadmap, which gives me the the idea that is it. Like a, is it become a handbook? Is it a handbook to guide people through their midlife cycling career? Um, is, is that something you're sort of comfortable with it being a handbook, or is there something different to it for you? Uh, I'm like, I don't, I don't think I came up with handbook, did I, Matthew? It's not your style, Phil. So I don't think you did. No, I don't think so. <laughs> no. Is, is it a handbook? No, it probably isn't. But probably what it is is quite hard to describe. To be fair. I mean, because until people, the most reaction I have, I have to the book is, it's not what I expected. Mm. So if people read it, it's not what they expected it to be. They thought it was going to be a training manual, they thought it was going to be a how-to book, or they thought it was going to be, and actually it's just a ramble, isn't it? <laughs> 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 it's, 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 I think it's a conversational, conversational starter. Ronnie Corbett monologue. But you can't put that on the cover either, can you? Okay. Uh, it could be uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Uh, do you know what? That, so that would be the... Yeah, that would be the. Would you like that? Would I think that's. I think that's a fairer. I think that's fairer. <laughs> yes, I think. You know, some people are, the bad reviews of Amazon have generally been people got it and they thought it could be something that it isn't. You know, uh, I think it's fair to say. It's quite a scientific book. I mean, it's a, it's a lot more scientific than I expected it to be when I read it. Sorry. Uh, no, <laughs> it was unexpected. I just it, it really is. It goes into incredible detail. I mean, the, the will I die chapter, which is quite a it is quite sort of hard hitting, and, um, and, you're, and, you're, and you're very sort of you're not, you don't hold back in any way. Uh, did you did you do you go out to sort of shock people into the truth? Is that something you wanted to do? You're asking good questions. That was the first chapter I delivered to Matthew. That chapter that was the first chapter I wrote in the book. Was chapter three. And it was, that was the book's calling card in a way. It was because I thought it was the data that I had to get out there. I thought it was the, the discussion that we had to have. Uh, and in a way, that chapter, although it's difficult to read, it's the longest chapter in the book, was double the length of any other chapter. And it is hard to read. It's quite hard to write. But it was the first chapter I wrote, and I thought it needed to be written. And I thought that we needed to have a very honest conversation about the risks, about the data that we had, the evidence that we had, the evidence that we didn't have, all the questions that were still outstanding. Um, so it was a very hard chapter to, it, I mean, a lot of people said to me, I can't get through chapter three. Like, like, like James Joyce, you know. <laughs> I started it, but I can't finish it. I, I, yeah, I definitely, I, I only, while I was reading the chapter, and I said, I can't, 
I'm struggling with the with the heart. I'll read it to you guys. Don't worry. I've actually reread it since then. Have you? Yes. Yeah. Good man. Especially when Craig says it. It's like Dr. Who, one of the best times I've ever read. But I mean, it, it's it's quite sort of candid and quite sort of uh, uh, very, very open sort of language you use. Now. Is, that, is that the sort of language that you need to get through to a midlife cyclist who might be a slightly stubborn and um, got a file on the Yeah, I suppose the tone of the book is mildly irreverent all the way through, and I think that's you know, part of this is my voice that comes naturally. I think it's testament to Bloomsbury that they didn't really, they didn't edit chapter three at all. I mean, and I thought that would, I thought that would get the scalpel, you know, to it because it's, it's long, it's big, it's involved. You, you know, I probably could cut it in half and have the same facts in there. And it's, you know, it's, uh, I, I think it's, you know, I'm pleased that it, it wasn't hacked to death that chapter. And I think it, it, even though it's hard to read, and even though a lot of people don't read it, they go from chapter two then to straight into is it too late to speed, what that chapter's called. You know, that's all the sexy stuff. Uh, you know, it's there, chapter three, and a lot of people then come back to it when you, you know, like you do. So, it, you know, it is a difficult chapter to read, I agree. Because it, even though it's, I think, in, its, in essence, it's good news and it's positive, I mean, there are still these questions out there. Nicola, can I just ask you a question on the same sort of subject? When you're just getting through to a, a midlife cyclist, when, you, when you're, through, you're through to a whole spectrum of people, um, whether they're young, old, whatever they are, when you're, when you're treating the midlife cyclists, uh, men or women, do you find yourself having to use language or, or, or just sort of get the point across that if they don't do something, then they're just going to go backwards and they're, they're, they're not going to make any progress in their problem. Um, yeah, I think, I think the biggest thing is that um, you can get away with quite a lot when you're younger. Yeah. So in your 20s, you can get away with not recovering, going out and having a big night out, and then riding your bike the next day or racing the next day, and you can achieve results. As you get older, you just can't get away with those barriers. So recovery is more important, looking after your body. So, you know, the amount of people that I see go, oh, I've never stretched, I don't need to stretch or do exercise. Oh, I've never done it. I'm like, well, that's why your legs don't move very well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's, it, it becomes, those, those things that you could tick or get away with become more important as you enter, you know, 40s, 50s. And do you, do you struggle to get your point across sometimes? And do you find yourself beating yourself, beating your head against a brick wall with certain Yeah, I mean, people? you know, I'm, I'm there to give advice and evidence for the advice and reasons why. If people choose to do it or not do it, you know, I want people to be better at cycling. So some people will take it on board and some people won't. It's their choice. But, you know, I've got... <laughs> <laughs> it just came and said, who knew? You know, it was amazing, and now I can cycle. And yeah, so, yeah, I think that's the thing. It's, it's The people that do do it are quite surprised at the difference it can make to do. And when I say do do it, it's physical work off the bike to make their performance on the bike better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So his next bend. Yeah. To be fair, she said to a bunch of us, she, I'm sick and tired of telling you all the same thing. I want you here at Thursday morning at 7 a.m. And for six months, you gave us physio as a collective class. And it was brilliant. Great idea. Brilliant. It wasn't just me. <laughs> <laughs> right. so just, yes, 
breaking protocol. I'm so desperate to say something after the last piece you talked about, Phil, about your both lifelong cyclists. You mentioned three camps. There's the ones who come from no sport at all. There's ones who come from other sports. So I was an international athlete to my late 30s, and I'm 56. And I took up cycling a bit after that, but never super seriously. Chapter three in your book and the early chapters meant everything to me. Right? Because my context was totally different, which is I wanted, one of the words you put early in the book was healthful. Mm. Right? And that meant everything because I'm 56 and I intend to live a healthful life for multiple decades from now to come. Cycling happens to be the medium through which I'm looking to do that. So I just wanted to know that coming from that background, which is not somebody who was racing bikes in grips and dinks fat out the back at the end, like, like the guy in the middle. He was never spat out of that. Right? Um, he was never spat out of that. Well, okay. You're being polite enough. Uh, people, <laughs> but, um, but actually, it's that approach. It, it, it's, I, I love the fact that it's higher context. It was Zen and cycling. Cycling is... I've, I've sent this book to six different people in the last three weeks. Right? Only four of them cycle. This is a way for you to look at growing older healthfully. So, sorry to jump in. That's right. What sport did you come from, if you don't mind me asking? Basketball first, then squash. Wow, that's not an obvious one, is it? It's the second book. It is, it is, because it's, it's, uh, it's a sport, and like tennis or all those sort of football and rugby, they're all the same, they do the same thing to your body. Yeah. You're turning on the spot. You're you turning off your legs. You're turning like that. And it just knackers your body, lower body. Absolutely. So cycling is the only thing you can Or do. swimming. Or swimming. Or rowing. <laughs> by the way, when I, when I wasn't in racing with a guy, I would live vicariously through his victories. Because I would get some of my money. I saw you in a break on the, you were in a break with me at uh, Eastway on, on the weekend, and I definitely wasn't. I was going out of bed, and then they say, "No, you did really, really well." And, and I knew for a fact this guy, this guy and I used to look exactly the same on a bike. <laughs> people would mistake who was guy and who was me. Yeah, really, did really, really well. Wasn't even there. <laughs> I mean, just, just can we just go back a little bit to your to the beginning of your career in 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 bike fitting? Um, during our during our mid, if we are midlife cyclists and we've been doing it forever. During our lifetimes, there's been a massive shift in technology in, in buying equipment and clothing and absolutely and, and nutrition and all the things that go into it. And we've, we've gone through that. Is everything that you think that sort of happened in the last sort of 30 years been a positive thing in terms of technology? Yeah, most of it, I think. I mean, and the reason I think bike fitters exist at all. Um, is I think because in the midlife cycle, because, because Nicola's absolutely right. When you're 20 and immortal, you can probably get away without that. You can probably get away without having an ill-fitting bike, badly set up shoes. It all you'll you'll mop up all these multitude of mistakes because your body is immortal. That won't happen at 56. They definitely won't happen at 60. So you know, it, and so the, uh, the 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 ubiquity of middle-aged athletes means that bike fitting is now essential. We don't have the same operating window, which is what I think you're saying, as a 20-year-old. We just don't. Um, so we need to be more finely calibrated. And we need to have knowledge. And we need to have uh, the underpinnings and first principles about why this stuff is important. And that's why, you know, why you're busy and I'm busy. Because we deliver that. We tell you, these are the first principles. This is what you need to do and why you need to do it. 
Yeah, that's my answer. It's a great answer. Um, coming on from that as well, the, when you, you got into the idea of bike fitting because of the reason that you and Jules, your business partner, Jules, who's co-founder of CycleFit, the pair of you, more or less at the same time, had ridden your bikes hard and you've done all sorts of things. You've done quite quick racing and you've done cyclocross and you've done track and you did it the TTs and that and skids and wheelies and everything else that you did and then you broke your bodies at more or less about the same sort of time and then thought well probably need to do something about some of the controllables here to try and reduce the, the chance of breaking my body any further so I think at least I need to sit on my bike properly and that's sort of how you how you got into it so you got into it after the event essentially you, you, you got into it as a reaction yes do you find yourself that, that you're, you're sort of, you prefer to see people before something went wrong, before, before, before the, you know, you've got the catastrophe, you've got the, the, the injury that Tom's had from doing basketball or something like that, you want to see them before that happens? Is that a frustrating thing for you? No, it's not frustrating. I think everyone's got their moment where they reach out for help. It's probably a question more for Nicola than me, actually. And preemptively, you could probably help. You know, I, mean, I, I get to see the broken machines, don't I? And but definitely would be more assistance to you if you could see them before they break down. Right? Yeah, and I think, and some people do come proactively and go, you know, literally I want an MOT, what, you know, what things could be going wrong, what can I do, what can I do to keep myself riding for longer without injury? So you do see people that, but, but often it's usually, like you say, an event or pain predominantly that causes people to seek out help. And then they might continue to come back because they then see the benefit of doing something preventatively, which is probably similar for you as well. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the times people come drag an anchor kind of a broken limb in through the door, and they've got the attack toy tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> this this does happen. <laughs> I've got to be the one to tell you that that can happen. So, Mark, can I just ask you um, a similar sort of question on the same sort of lines? Uh, as you're a strong advocate for preserving mental health, is there something that we can do as midlife cyclists or, or just in our midlife uh, to perhaps safeguard our future mental health? Is there something we can sort of actively do? Well, there's lots we can do as general human beings on safeguarding mental health. And some of those things we talked about before about investing in our relationships, finding out the things that help us be more resilient taking time to look after our physical health and get outdoors and have a sense of meaning and purpose. But I'd say specifically in the context of cycling and, and linking back to what Phil said, I think it's an opportunity to rethink our goals a little bit. Some of what you've just been describing, I think, is, you know, when I first came into this about a decade ago, it was the really short-term goal. I want to be able to do that event or, you know, do the attack or do a ride London or something. And what I've shifted my goals to are more like what the gentleman said here about a healthful overall life and so my rather silly personal goal is I want to cycle to the moon before I die which is uh, the moon is 384,400 kilometers away and I've, I'm about at my 100,000 kilometers cycling since I started you know, back in 2013 or whatever it was and that's a rather silly goal but it means I'm just about on track to get there when I'm about 82 at the moment um, which is ridiculous having a goal that's that long but I find it quite it makes me think about my cycling aims as a how do I stay healthful? How do I enjoy it? How do I not end up with knee pain? How do I get my nutrition right? 
And so I, I found that sort of getting out of the competitive goals and more into the like enjoying life, connecting with people. So I'm less interested in my FTP, uh, more interested in like, am I getting enough sleep to be feeling good on the bike tomorrow? You know, that sort of thing. So that's a sort of subtle shift, I think. So does that chime with your views on goals shifting as well? It definitely does, absolutely. And I definitely think if you had like an, an order of priorities, getting enough sleep should be way above what your FTP is and getting, and getting your FTP higher. I mean, I think that's one of the take-homes of the book. And I'm really interested to what you were saying, Christina, about. so do you think how you cycle, how you contextualise cycling in your life is one of the reasons that you've been so successful, you know, keeping this, you know, illness at bay? And had you conducted it differently, the outcome could have been different? Yeah, I think so. And I, um, I still have a much more balanced life today. So when, as far as I know, I have a big job in the city, and you know, I kind of, I probably, I was active, but not as active as I am now. And yes, I wish I had had a different life um, then, and this forced me to, you know, think about what I was doing and being more mindful about it. Um, but I absolutely think now that you know, I think being able to have a, a release from the cancer and the treatment, and thinking you know, I'm anything but a cancer patient on the bike, is usually helpful. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, I think the, the research doesn't bear that out yet. You know, what is that benefit? But I believe it, so that's going to have a positive impact. I think it's a little bit that it's like an affirmation almost rather than just a concrete. Well, there's affirmation, there's also a kind of sense of purpose. And I think one of the things you've done brilliantly with the, the charity work and just sort of turning a really awful life mm -hmm. event into something that's not only helping you but inspiring others and raising money and it's just really purposeful and actually you see that a lot in the cycling community and actually some of the biggest drivers of mental well-being is really part of something bigger and I think you know you're, you're reminding us with this book that this is not just about the direct short-term personal achievement it's about being part of a community of cyclists and actually you know your story is a fantastic example of purpose beyond just you know fitness and so on. That's really excellent I think that was a really really good piece of what you just said there it's fantastic thank you Christine. Um, Bill, can I just uh, go back to the to the book uh, for a moment? Uh, the one of the one of the suggestions that you have in the book uh, for the midlife cyclist is to mix it up a bit, take a little bit of cycling out, mm -hmm. and replace it with something else. What what sort of something else uh, is your sort of best recommendation? Well, to to be Let's, let's take you as a, an example. Because uh, you read this book when you were having some some, some uh, injury issues. Sorry? <laughs> oh, okay. They, they, often, they often take So, actually, one, one of the reasons you had issues you did is because you spent 40 years in flexion, spinal flexion and hip flexion. And, you know, and when you were in spinal flexion and hip flexion, you were like a Lucas A bunny, you know, on the regular of the entire time. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that mindless. Just feeling nothing from the next hour. <laughs> and if it, if it hurt a bit, I just pushed hard. Exactly right. Quite right. So if you join the dots there, spinal flexion, hip flexion, Lucas A bunny, you know, going billy bonkers on the bike, you know, 11 tenths the whole time. In fact, it's even the title when your bike is down. Name, yes, joining the dots and the names on your bikes. <laughs> so, but I don't think that's an accident. Nicola wants to come in here. So, but my, what I would say is, as an antidote, you want to do something which encourages extension, spinal extension. So you want to be thinking about gentle running, 
enjoyed walking, paddleboarding, a uh, bit of gym work for bone density and to offset the you know, muscle wastage and muscle loss as you get older. So just think about things that fill in all the blanks that cycling doesn't do. And, and the predominant one of those for me would be spine, think about spinal extension, you know, standing up straight and not slouching like you might say. Yeah, and just the, the problem when we look at balance and what the body does, that for most people that cycle, they're also then spending a lot of time sitting at work, so that flexion predominates throughout the whole day. Um, I spent a lot, lot of time through lockdown just trying to get people to walk or to stand or to stand and take calls, because even though they're not an extension, they're, they're more extended than they are when they're sitting. So it's it's even, you know, it's like the mental health side, it's finding that balance, it's... it's the yin and yang, dare I say it, but the, the changing from being one position to being in another, adding some, uh, even like running or trail running because it's dynamic, you're moving from one side to the other, you're not just following that sagittal plane, which is one plane of what we use when the cycling. plane. So our buffer gets, gets smaller when we're doing the same thing all the time. Widening the buffer means you, you're less likely to become injured or to become painful. Pain yeah. And in all those activities you just mentioned, not one of them was going to a gym. Is that, is that something that can also be? I mean, I think it is. It is, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, is, it is good to go to a gym because you've got a range of weights, you can do a range of movements, you can move your body in lots of different positions that it's not moved in. However, some people hate the gym, so therefore, if you hate the gym, don't punish yourself by taking yourself to the gym. There's other things you can do. You know, you can be outside and exercise, just moving in a different way. Basically, swimming is actually. <laughs> but the other thing I would say as well, just based on that balance that we're talking about for mental health, I think a lot of times what I see, because I see people at the point of injury, at the point of devastation, because the goal that they set and the thing that they wanted to do was has now been taken away from them potentially, it can really plummet people into a big low. They're looking on Strava and seeing what everybody else is doing. And, I think when we get so fixated in cycling, because it is our window, I think that can be slightly negative as well. And so it's important, as Phil mentions in the book, you know, just go out without, you know, without putting it on Strava. Go out without any metrics. Go out and just ride the bike. It's why you enjoy it, because we can sometimes get so focused on that that we forget those. That's a very, very good point. I mean, I find it quite depressing when I come out average speed and it's a paltry 26k an hour for a road ride with the wind behind me all the way so I think, oh god and I, I definitely do find myself a little bit like head down after that when I actually should have come back and gone well that was a really good bike ride and I've been on laughing and so I think we have to sort of reconnect with what we actually do the sport for in the first place and, and you know taking out some of the metrics is uh do a bit more of that. In, in those activities that you mentioned there, Phil, and, and in fact you as well, Nicola, were, were activities where you might have to do a little bit of relearning of how to do things. And I think, Phil, in your Mindful Cyclist chapter, you mentioned the, um, the idea and the notion of fluid intelligence. And you mentioned it a number of times. Do you remember that? Yeah, I'm body fluid. <laughs> Non-fluid. Fiscus, fragiscus. Do you remember rice? No. Oh. <laughs> I do, yeah. I mean, I did, yeah. The thing is, the bad thing about back in the day, 
cohort, you and I. The bad bit about you and I, our cohort, is we grew up in the mindset, if you weren't on the bike, you weren't improving. Remember that? It's just you had to be on the bike, going hard to improve. That was, that was we lived by that mantra, didn't we? Yes. And that's just wrong. It's, it's probably wrong at 20, but it's bloody well wrong at 50. Because you need to start thinking about dropping slightly down and doing new things, learning new things. And as Nicola was saying, chaotic walking, or it doesn't have to be particularly hard, or it just needs to be different to cycling. You need to use different muscles. Cycling is unbelievably controlled. It's very linear. You take yourself, a, an organism that's, that's evolved to run and walk, and you strap it into a sewing machine, and then you make it go a million miles an hour. There's nothing natural about that. It's awful. So, you know, we love it, but it's not particularly good for you, other than making you very good at being a cyclist. But that isn't very good at being a human being. So cycling is amazing, because it, it, it will sustain you when you come from basketball and squat in, into it. But it's not enough. It's a magic tool, but it's, it's not as magic as you think it is. So you need to drop it out and put in other things or complement it. And complementing isn't necessarily 20, but complementing at 50, 60, trust me, is absolutely essential. Is that the question you asked? Uh, I think so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Talking new skills, Christine, you've been learning how to do some cyclocross skills, learning new new skills, motor neurone connection, um, how to get on and off the bike. How's that going? Well, <laughs> I've been riding with you recently. I need my, my coach back, so... Yeah, that, that's been a, a lot of um, that's been a lot of fun as well. So um, I've got one of these amazing machines as well, which is great. So I just covered a gravel bike as well. So that's been a yeah. And I think I think with the rack event, you talked about gravel riding being really good. Both you did for mental and for balance. It's a different phenomenon. I mean, just the whole the whole body workout of it, I think, is is amazing. I'm just getting me also in lockdown. Been getting out in the woods and really out um, of you know something different and it depends on eventually how long those gravel bikes is extraordinary. So I really like the the kind of discipline of riding gravel a lot in the winter, especially and it just having it's a bit of an antidote to the road. I mean, it's, um, and what, what is it about? What, what do you really like about? It? I mean, just just the fact you're not on a road and you haven't got a car coming past you. Well, I've just I've been to the most extraordinary places. You know, I, I did this crazy Pennine Rally. As well, I mean, we rode from Edinburgh to Manchester off road, wow. one of the most amazing. I can't describe it like <clears> the oak <throat> tracks you go up and down. We yeah. used like gravel, but yeah, most of it was rocks and pushing the bike up. But you know, just yeah, it was the different terrain was just incredible. And also to realize that that was in the UK, like being on the top of this incredible climb with the sheets of bare. And looking out, and you can't see another person or another thing, another road, vehicle, anything. Yeah, it's really uh, life. There's a lot to be said for gravel riding. I think it's, it's been a great. Um, I mean, we've, we've sold a lot of gravel bikes. It's been a really lovely thing to sell because it's it, you, you extol the virtues of the gravel bike, like get yourself off the roads, come see the world from a slightly different perspective, and go somewhere and be really, really safe. While you're doing it, and and 
and get back in touch. I sound a bit corny, but getting back in touch with nature is really, really well, good for you. It's made me go to the gym as well. I'm like, oh my god, I actually have to be able to pick the bike up and carry it and jump over stuff. So, and that, like, okay, now I need to do some lunges and squats and carry heavy stuff. There you go. And did, you, did you do that to the point where you were like getting a tent out at the end of the day and sleeping in a tent and cooking up on a gas stove? I got that far yet. I think we're we're just sort of coming to the point where we might open a few questions from the floor. Can I just add one more thing, which is um, we talked about technology a little bit, and the, obviously the bike tech has moved on a lot. But one thing I think is really interesting about the kind of tech that helps us understand ourselves more, um, and obviously there's certain data you get from your Garmin or your or whatever. I, I've been wearing an aura ring, which is one of these kind of wearables that helps you look at things like heart rate and how much sleep you're getting. I think the sleep point you made is really important. But there's a, there's a particular parameter you raise in the book, which I think is really interesting. And I, you know, through measuring and understanding my own body more and how that links to my mental health as well, I've made various changes, including changing my like actually trying to get more sleep consciously, something I never did, like drinking less, changing my diet, and so on. But this this parameter, HRV. It's something that's really helped me because it feels to me like it's a really unique way of understanding how you're doing physically, but also understanding how you're doing in terms of stress. And you might your HRV, which you want to be high, can you just high so rate, heart rate variability. So it's, it's not just your speed of your heart rate; it's how much your heart rate varies. And they found out that you gave the example in the book that in a cardiac ward, if your heart rate variability goes really low, i.e. your heart rate goes really metronomic, you're about to have a heart attack and die. So what you want is a high HRV, and you know it can be affected by eating, whether you're stressed, how much training you've done. Do you want to say a bit more about the importance of it? Because it felt to me that it's been a big impact for me, but it sort of joins physical and mental together, I think. Yeah, I think it does. And maybe Dave, Dr. Dave wants to have a little word at the moment, but in the moment. But yeah, I think HRV does link, I think it's really important in terms of that mind-body connection because we have something called the autonomic nervous system, which is like our yin-yang kind of, we have our sympathetic and our parasympathetic nervous system. And, and what men, and I'm going to just um, generalise here, what we're not very good at in men is we're not very good at controlling our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. Drink more coffee, get more stress, try a bit harder, drink a wine, train hard, not get enough sleep. And that all that wires up the sympathetic nervous system, which is our kind of flight, fight, flight, uh, autonomic setting. We're not so good at invoking our parasympathetic nervous system. And what, the, and what HRV is very good at, is telling you about your autonomic tone. Um, and so HRV is the, is the variation between the beats. So your, your heart might be going at 70, but the actual, the, the beats are not, the gaps between the beats are not uniform. And as Mark says, what we want is high, ironically enough, heart rate variability. And it tells you something about your autonomic tone. And back in the day, again, Guy and I would get up in the morning and take our heart rate to see if we should be racing that day. Right? Good to go, I'm below 50. Uh, and but that doesn't tell you very much. I've never did this. I never even took my heart rate. So I, I was just eating jam sandwiches. So. <laughs> 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 right, of course. <laughs> way more advanced. Sorry, you were, you were miles ahead. Yeah, yeah, no wonder you did better. It was like Peter Keane compared to you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so you take, we take our heart rates in the morning, some of us, and say, should I be racing at all today? Below 50, I'm going to raise on that smash, etc. But that doesn't tell you very much because, because we're a self-selecting group. We've all got athletic hearts and slow pulses because we do 
loads of training and have done our entire lives. So the fact that our heart rate is below 50 doesn't tell us very much. HRV tells us all a lot more. It tells us how stressed we are, how rested we are, how recovered we are. Dave, I'm really at the end of my HRV knowledge. Do you want to jump in here, Dr. David Hull? Dr. David, um, I'll just introduce you, Dr. David. For those of you who've read the book, he's heavily featured. <laughs> he, he does feature many times in the book. He is the doctor for a number of pro-continental teams. We'll come with which one. Is it Ian? Uh, we need Ian. Yeah, 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 he's, so he, he's the bloke being out the car. No, Tom. He's the... <laughs> They used to go sweating at the finish line to count them over the line and make sure they're in one piece. That's it. Thanks. Uh, nice to see everyone. Um, I'm, I think the last time I came here, uh, about halfway through the session, uh, an opera singer arrived as the novelty act. So I'm very pleased to be a novelty act for this evening. Yeah, heart rate variability. Um, when you, if you, if you sit quietly and measure your pulse, you'll notice that when you breathe in, it's a little bit faster, and when you breathe out, it's a little bit slower. And that's natural, that's what happens to all of us. And the more it varies, the, the better rested and the better prepared for action you are. Um, I mean, the term we use in, in EF is physiological readiness. So your heart rate variability is a measure of your physiological readiness, your readiness to then go and um, stress your body systems. Now, what, what influences heart rate variability? Well, let's start with the bad stuff first. What, what um, decreases heart rate variability? Or basically, um, yeah, alcohol. So, <laughs> two things, effectively. Yeah, two, two big things. Alcohol, lack of sleep, overtraining. And um, what improves it? Sleep. Professional cycling has changed a lot. Um, I worked, started working in professional cycling around 2010, and the big thing that's changed is this recognition of what recovery is all about. To me, it's obviously no longer about wiring yourself up to a, a load of intravenous drips or <laughs> the bad things it used to be. Sleep is the best recovery modality known to man for life, for cycling, for performance at work, for mental health, you know, well-being. Sleep is the key. And um, we've got a, you've got a chapter on sleep, haven't you? We've got a big section on sleep in the book. It should have been a chapter, but it wasn't a chapter. It was a part of a chapter. But I, if I could rewrite the book, um, I would, sleep would be a chapter. I've done a couple of columns on sleep. Yeah. Um, the second volume, I, 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 sleep's... Sleep's a little bit like exercise. It's something that we're designed to do. Um, we don't do it very much, or we don't do it very well, because we all think we're indestructible. The electric light bulb was invented. Um, we have 24-hour lifestyles. We're now on social media all the time, and we drink alcohol. Um, but you know, sleep, sleep is almost the new exercise. It's something we're designed to do. It's something we don't do very much of. But when we actually do do it, it has profound health and well-being benefits. And um, I'll have a quick plug. We've got an aura ring here. This is a whoop band here. Um, they measure heart rate variability. The, 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 one of the, the big differences, it, the, the 
with the new wearables that are coming out are using HRV rather than purely measuring heart rate or using um, accelerometers <coughs> to work out roughly what your sleep cycle is. So yeah, heart rate variability, very important. Thank you, Um, you know, I think there's, there's the other really important factor 
just touching on what David's already spoken about, is sleep. So it's a massive factor in perimenopause and menopause of women that the loss of estrogen affects sleep. So sleep, then not being able to sleep, affects all the other emotions, anxiety, stress, your ability to then ride the bike, those are things that you need to do. So managing that, which can be um, by, you know, having sleep, um, I forget what they call it, sleep, Anyway, making the room comfortable that you can sleep hygiene. Sleep, sleep, sleep hygiene, that's what it does. Yeah, it's very difficult. But yeah, it's good sleep hygiene, giving you the space to sleep, that actually helps balance your hormones more. So then it gives you the ability to be able to write. And then also there's, there's HRT, so using that. Can you shake your head? <laughs> um, because maybe it's a conversation we can, we can have. Yeah. <laughs> Craig, sorry, I don't know if it's Craig or Craig, are you going to ask about testosterone? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned earlier that you have some celebrity guests here, and I don't know if that we should introduce Al, who is actually the perfect midlife cyclist right here. And going back to chapter three about heart health, Al had the heart attack months ago. Al, would you like to tell us about it? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I just had a question, though, about yes, that. Yes, cool. Which, and, and for um, what you make a great point. Is can you describe what, what, what actually happened so that everyone in the room can understand? Okay. Sorry, can you the mic? Well, Al, what happened? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Four out. Yeah, four out. Really? <laughs> <laughs> fucking heart attack. <laughs> 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 but also, Al's previous sport. Nightclub use, is that right? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but, but also, uh, you made a great point about um, female uh, heart versus the male heart, and how that's the benefit of being female is that they seem to have this resilient heart, which is brilliant. Um, and based on the fact that they're, they're sort of, you know, the, the role of looking after the offspring, and maybe there's that sort of thing going on as well. But the, the actual question I had, though was more about the fact that as athletes, we exercise a lot through our lives, there's this kind of constant state of hypoxia that we're in, or sort of lack of oxygen to the heart, and that can do some damage, which possibly explains why you ended up with the heart attack. And do you want to just touch on that briefly? Al, you okay with touching on this? <laughs> yeah, because it, it wasn't that. I had a random lump of cholesterol. Okay. Yeah. And then I had that whilst on the bike. Yeah. It was on the bun run, coming back from the bun. <laughs> was it a piece of bun? It's a bun. It, it, it was on the bun run, which is a, a, quite a, um, a, a very sort of regular bike ride involving some professional cyclists and some young people, and as well as old people like us. Um, and we're coming back from Windsor at 60k an hour behind Rory Townsend, who is like the local pro. And then Al was feeling a little bit funny and had to stop and then just blamed it on indigestion and in a typical sort of midlife cyclist way then just rode home uh, and then I think didn't you ride to the hospital the next day on your bike as well to get it checked out I did yeah. and it turned out he'd had a full heart attack so yes carry on Phil <laughs> follow that and it was November so quite, yeah, exactly the right time to go 40 miles an hour. <laughs> so, in terms of going, switching slightly back to hormones, so women are, I think I say it in the book, just designed better than men. 
or I should say, they're designed to run longer. Uh, and Professor Philip Dorgan, who I spoke to and interviewed and I quoted him in the book, saying, look, men evolved to kind of peak early and then die young, uh, and women were, have, have evolved to, to last longer. So they're protected, women are protected um, from a lot of the issues that men have in terms of cardiac health because the estrogen uh, is both anti-inflammatory and it also protects the heart from atrial stretch. Am I right in saying that, Dr. David, before I go too, yes. too far? Thank you. <laughs> so, so in that sense, we're not uniquely protected as a cohort. So chapter three doesn't generally, uh, isn't generally the, the wild ghost trade ride for women. It is for men. But you're quite right in what you say. Then there is the kind of the, the cliff is the, is the hormonal cliff, which is perimenopause and then menopause. And I've learned a lot about this um, over, over the years and have, have become you know, somewhat interested in it, I have to say, because it, as, a, as a community, as a society, we were, you know, there was always like this kind of, is HRT a good thing or a bad thing? And does it have a role? And does it have health risks? And there was almost like a, a negative slant. Sorry, you wanted to come in? No, no, after you, after you. So, so um, and that's why that's why I got Nikki. I interviewed Nikki Keats for the book several times and got her position on this, and then we invited her on the panel for the for the rapper talk. Um, I'm not sure I'm going with this, but um, just to say that I you know I think the book is very open minded about and tries to be very clear about where the risks are for women and where the risks are for men. And I think up until perimenopause and menopause, women are uniquely protected in terms of because they have decades of protection from estrogen, anti-inflammatory, protection against atrial stretch. But then, then you get the perimenopause and the menopause, and then the, the management system is different. So, to you now. So, so the fact is that now, a bit like we're a new experiment, us with motorcycles, women are a new experiment as well, because we spend more than half our lives in an estrogen-depleted state. Mm -hmm. yes. So HRT mm -hmm. is undoubtedly brilliant for you, unless you have contraindications. And you're right that the, these myths about HRT yes. need to be dispelled a bit Agreed. like you do in Chapter 3 mm. around cardiac disease and why of a myocardial infarct. But, but I just wanted to say something about the HRV and your parasympathetic system because you said there are points at which when you're on a bike, you're doing that same repetitive movement and if the head isn't at the right place, it's too repetitive. But if you take five parasympathetic breaths, Dr. Mark will know, that you reset, so you go back into what, what we know is respiratory sinus arrhythmia, where yes. your heart rate variability is. So you can reset on a bike. I just like to really reinforce that. I, in the morning, I take my HRV, I then do 15 minutes meditation, and my HRV is higher afterwards. But it's really, you can it's see it's the difference. Yeah, it's really, it's so powerful. I, I, sorry, can, I, can I just make one more comment? Yeah, that I think please do. This thing about data, you talked about not riding before Strava. So we talk about IQ, we talk about emotional intelligence now, and there is a level of physical intelligence where you learn to listen to your body. I think you're right. But I think there is something about learning to understand that physicality without having a device on you without having the monster on you. And just that, that for me, would be the next stage of us evolving in our cycling journey. I, I, I could not agree with you more. And I think, you know, just putting my hand up as, the, as a male representative, I think that this is where we've been particularly remiss 
And chapter eight really is trying to get us men to sort of resettle a little bit. You know, be a little bit more empathic, think a little bit more about what things you know are likely to cause inflammation in our bodies, which are going to have long-term health consequences. So I couldn't agree with you more. But is it, you said that inflammation, you sound, it sound like it's a bad thing. It's not always a bad thing, is it, inflammation? No. And again, we might come back to Dave here. Because exercise is acutely inflammatory. In the moment, it's, it's, it's causing inflammation. But chronically, it's anti-inflammatory. But you need to make sure that you're doing supportive work to support the chronically anti-inflammatory step. And that is about being aware of HRV, being aware of stress, tension, and what you eat and how much you sleep, the meditation. And it might sound like it's, you know, it's now becoming mainstream because it's it's true and it works. And if you're going to train hard and exercise hard, you need to do it. There's, there's no two ways. Excellent. Anybody else like to offer a question? Oliver Hill about legendary cyclists. Um, I'm going to open this question to the floor. Um, we're talking about midlife cyclists. Can you hear okay? Yes. Yeah. Um, this, I'm thinking, 10 years ago, the Olympics, the big cycling dream, everybody getting fixated about Bradley Wiggins and Cab, and it was a moment in time, question, and now we're selling loads of gravel bikes. Do you think, does the panel think, that our sort of psyche, our philosophy towards cycling has changed? We, and I, I, don't, I don't know, I'm sort of interested in what everybody thinks, but... Young people growing up today, are they always just going to go through thinking, I'm going to go fast up as we can on a jam sandwich? Or <laughs> actually, do you think there's a change in how we are treating cycling? Maybe we're not going to be connected to devices and we're going to be a bit more at one with nature on our gravel bikes. Yeah, just, just interested. That's a very, very good question. I, and I, can, I, can I also extend that question as, as to what Phil would perhaps, um, how it feels brilliant advice all the way through the book and, I, and it's a philosophy and it's a science book and it's all those sort of things. Where, where, are, where do we stand as responsible adults to pass down information to that next generation who are incredibly data driven and they've, you know, they've, they've, been, they've given a whole new, as you, as you say, a whole new set of um, disciplines to do that now they've grappled or they're cyclocross or whatever. And the diversity in the in those cycling dis disciplines, although they are essentially doing the same thing, the likes of Matthew Van der who are doing full back-to-back -back seasons through road racing, and then, or you might do track, or then you might do cyclocross, and then you have mountain biking. What's the advice that we need to pass down with midlife cyclists? Is that me? Yeah. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Um, I think yeah. Going on first. Yeah, I mean, Mark, Mark you're, you're, you're the perfect person to answer that. From a, from a yeah. mental health perspective, how can we how can we use our experience to pass down to the next generation? I, I think it's really interesting. We could probably only answer that with having people from the next generation below us, midlifers, to really answer it. So I, 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 I started cycling. I mean, I cycled as a kid a lot, but I started getting serious about cycling around that 2012 sort of heyday moment, and you know, it's been a decade really intensely since. But I don't know the people who are coming to that same realisation of like, I'd like to get on a bike today. I, you know, there isn't such a clear British, uh, you know, performance field success thing as there might have been then and the, the, the London vibe. Um, so I don't really know, but I think there's something interesting culturally happening. Maybe you might say that some of the changes to the highway code recently in recognising 
cyclists more and the changes to the cycle lanes, particularly in London, and you set a greater sense of a bigger proportion of the population cycling might make it more of an, an everyman thing, not just a competitive thing. And I, I hope that we can alleviate some of the dislike of cyclists. I mean, I have a wife who walks in Richmond Park with our dog who gets really upset about the way the cyclists behave in Richmond Park, and I try and sort of mediate that a little bit. But I mean, I think we could do ourselves a favour culturally by being a little, little bit less obsessed with getting an FTP that looks good around the park, rather than thinking, how can I really enjoy this and be with my friends and get a great bit of fitness in and, and connect with nature. And so that, that may just be me getting older and getting a bit less like, I can't go as fast as I could 10 years ago. But, but I think, I hope there's a slightly more holistic approach to it generally as a culture. I don't know, I'd love to hear other people's thoughts as well. Uh, just, just one comment I'd make in, in the sort of next generation coming through, certainly in lockdown, I saw a lot of people come through that were getting bikes for the first time, and generally they would be in their twenties and younger, and getting on a bike then because their mates were. So that, rather than it being the Olympics influence, it was definitely a lockdown influence. And then with that, also travelling with their bikes as well. So bike packing has then become a huge thing. Um, and you know, I guess it's that thing of is it the information we can give, or is it the changing times of different external influences that have a factor. And Christine, would you would you be able to, I mean, if you if you are giving me giving some advice to you know, cancer is not going to go away. It's yeah. it's with us. And it's, it doesn't choose its age in any way. So it's across all ages. How would how do you sort of how would you extol the virtues of perhaps cycling or exercising? Yeah, I guess it's just a. I mean, I guess I went through all the things that kids do if we played sports at school, and then I don't know. Went to uni and discovered beer and boys and that's kind of it you know the end of the end of sports there and I just think thinking about cycling as like a lifestyle thing and uh, you know I get huge benefits from being part of a club and it's the social aspects and the adventure side of things but I think somehow making sure that uh, kids understand that you can have that not necessarily competitive side but it can be you know a hugely important part of your social life I look at you know I don't have kids but you know god kids and teenagers spend their lives in front of screens and what a great thing to get away from that and, you know, be out with your mates and, and uh, you know, experience the outdoors. And Phil, can you add anything to the, to, just to wrap up today, tonight's proceedings with um, some words of incredible meaning? I think if I was to add to something in that debate, I would say bike fitting is, has taught me that to use data and to use technology as a, a slave, not a master. And as a, as a bike fitter, I've seen I've gone from no technology at all, you know, 25 years ago, to now, you know, our rooms look like NASA. But even now, technology to me is, is only something I use to explain something to a client, illustrate something to a client, or to try and look a bit deeper to something I can't see with my naked eye. So it's my, it's very much, I, I'm old school in the sense that I use it when I want to use it, but I'm not absolutely wedded to it. I think that's the same with cycling. There's no point in trying to get our kids off screens and then they go and stare at Garmin on, the, on their bike. Or, you know, that, that's just counterintuitive, isn't it? There has to be a liberation. So use data when it's useful and then discard it when it's not. Don't, don't be, you know, and I think the, this is the thing with cycling, it's, it can be too finely metricated, and we can be too attached to the data, and that's to our detriment, both physically and emotionally. And we, you know, and I, I think I say it in the book, it's like, for God's sake, 
there's a moment there where you just where you just you know become the bear for cyclists and cycle because you enjoy it. Uh, and I think that if we can pass something on to the younger riders who are very metricated, the new professionals, I'm sure they would bear this out. The young pros, they are incredibly metricated. And it's like that's okay when all the numbers going in the right direction. There's no point in metricating you're going in the wrong direction because it just makes you feel worse. So you've got to you've got to you've got to find your comfort zone with technology and with data. And I sort of slightly err uh, on the um, discard it early, don't discard it late, don't say. I think it's you know, if you use it, it's useful. It really is genuinely useful. But don't be prepared, don't be don't be shy in moving it aside and just go with how you feel. Because that whole org scale thing is very good. Ride how you feel. Feel great, ride fast. Don't feel great, ride slow. You still ride. You know, and I think that's it's too simple to be a mantra, but it is. Thank you very much, Phil. That was exactly the answer. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Right, I think we're going to wrap it up now. Thank you very much. Uh, a great thanks to Mark Williamson, uh, Action for Happiness. Thank you very much, Christine, and your charity, One More City. Nicola Roberts, your company, Velo Physio, and alongside the CycleFit, and Phil Cabell, author of Midlife Cyclist. Thank you very much.